You realize that critics outside the church often accuse the Old Testament God of genocide and racism and ethnic cleansing and violence. Hmm. But here's uh, something interesting. There's a rising tide of critics, even within the church, that claim, for instance, that Moses and other quote-unquote primitive violence-prone prophets were mistaken about God's commands and character. Now, that's coming from within the church. Both sets of critics dismiss this allegedly harsh, flawed, textual Old Testament God in favor of the kind and compassionate actual God revealed by Jesus. Are they right to do so? Mm. What about drawing that line in the sand? Maybe you yourself have had these thoughts. As you're reading through some of the hard texts in the Old Testament, uh, and you're like, man, that seems like really, really harsh. You know, the wrath of God displayed there. What about, uh, you know, the Canaanites? Kill all the Canaanites in the land, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to get to some of these other uh, hard texts uh, in just a few minutes. But the name of Paul's book is, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testaments. Paul, welcome to the conversation. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Great to be with you both. I should mention that Paul is very uh, prolific when it comes to writing. More than Paul, it's more than 40 books now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And then you had, uh, the last book you had out is uh, Is God a Moral Monster? And this is somewhat of a companion volume to that. They go together, don't they? That's right. Yeah, I'm building on the book uh, Is God a Moral Monster? And also uh, kind of a middle book uh, that I co-authored is Did God Really Command Genocide? And now this one is God of Addictive Bully. Spoiler alert, the answer is no to all three of them. (laughs) Uh, But but yes, I'm trying to build on what I've done before, but also um, add a lot of new material to make uh, accessible answers to a lot of those difficult Old Testament questions that people so often ask about. Yeah, we're going to get to those in just a few minutes. But how great is the, or how wide is the divide between the Old and New Testaments anyway? Well, I argue that there's a lot of moral carryover, that the moral framework of the Old Testament is assumed by Jesus and the New Testament authorities. Um, There are some things that are, of course, uh, uh, fulfilled in Christ, uh, things that are uh, no longer carrying over, things like kosher laws or uh, or the you know or you know certain you know purification rituals and so forth, uh, those have been fulfilled in Christ. And of course, you know ancient Israel was a nation with uh, you know with penalties, with uh, judges, with uh, boundaries and so forth. And so a lot of the things that pertain to them as a, an old covenant people uh, don't pertain to the church, uh, the interethnic people of God uh, scattered throughout the world uh, in this new covenant age. Hmm. Let's dive into some of these snapshots out of Scripture that you highlight in your book. One of them is, if we go to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2, why did the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, uh, curse the youths for making fun of his baldness? Uh, Maybe share the story real quickly uh, for those who are not aware of what it's all about. Right, uh, um, Elijah. Elisha comes to uh, to Bethel, which is a city of idolatry, and uh, he, uh, his successor Elijah, has just departed, 
and the uh, those who knew you know, know about this, kind of referring back to that, they say, go on up, uh, bald head or baldy, uh, just like uh, Elijah has had gone up into heaven. And, uh, and so uh, they are mocking this prophet of God who comes, and, uh, and so he uh, calls, calls down God's judgment upon them, and two uh, female bears uh, come and, uh, and maul these 42 uh, youths. And so that is seen as maybe a cranky old prophet who's upset with these little kids and uh, calls judgment upon them, and it uh, seems cruel and vindictive. Mm. Hmm. So in the midst of all of that, you know, how do we reconcile uh, God's response in, in doing this without, uh, you know, it's tough for us because we're like, man, uh, there again, this seems overly harsh, the yeah, way this thing right. played out. Is he a bully? Yeah. <laughs> well, the the as uh, those critics from within uh, the church uh, say, yeah, Elisha misused his divine power. He shouldn't have done that, or maybe he was even demonically inspired. Uh, even though it looks from the Old Testament like he's zealous for God and so forth, from a New Testament or Jesus perspective, uh, this could be seen as a, a demonic attitude. Uh, so, so I would say first of all that in Leviticus 26, God actually warns in His covenant warnings: uh, if you break the covenant, if you uh, depart from My ways, I will send uh, wild beasts to you, and they will, uh, and you will be bereft of your children. Interestingly, Elisha has just gone to Jericho, and they welcomed him there. And the same language is used that he, you know, bereft or. Uh, you know, unfruitful. The land in Jericho is unfruitful because the waters were contaminated, and Elisha made them sweet again. And then, uh, and so they are blessed to have Elisha there, but he comes to uh, this center of idolatry, and they mock him. And so these, uh, the they're instead of receiving the blessing that comes from the prophet and obeying the covenant, God says, well, uh, you know, basically this is what what God had promised that uh, that these bears would come. Uh, and uh, these wild beasts would come, and the and parents would be bereft of their children. Hmm. Now they're not little kids on a playground; uh, that they are they are young unmarried men. The same term is used of uh, of David before he fought Goliath and so forth. These aren't little kids teasing a prophet uh, who don't know better. No, these are people who are probably from the royal house. They are they are un, unmarried, don't have a household of their own, but they're uh, certainly well enough, you know, old enough to know what's going on. And so, so there is a covenant context. There is a a context of receiving the prophet. Uh, you know, that simply should be the case. You know, in Jericho, uh, but in Bethel, that doesn't happen. And so, that's what happens when you uh, when you insult, when you mock, when you uh, disregard the covenant that God has made with His people. Let's talk about Deuteronomy chapter 20. I mean, we could go on and on here in the Old Testament, but uh, God is telling uh, the Israelites they need to destroy the Canaanites from the land, and that means men, women, children, and of course, when we read through that, Paul, that disturbs us because we're thinking this seems, there again, so harsh, so heartless. What about these quote-unquote innocent children? and all of that. What is going on there in Deuteronomy 20? Well, there are a couple of approaches that some people take. John Calvin, for example, uh, believed that this is the one exception, you know, that, you know, God did command genocide in this uh, scenario that he wanted the utter eradication of the Canaanites. 
And there are others, and I take this view, who, as you look more closely at the text, you realize that even though it uses this sweeping language, and keep in mind that in the ancient Near East, the war texts used this kind of hyperbole, this sweeping language, man, woman, young and old, there were no survivors left and so forth. Even though as we read the text uh, of Joshua and, and elsewhere, that when it, even though it says we left no survivor, you see survivors on the next page of the Bible, uh, you see them at the end of the book. Uh, in fact, even Joshua himself writes, or, you know, says that there are many nations that still need to be driven out. Uh, and, and in Judges chapter 1, it says, uh, you know, they could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. That theme is repeated. And, uh, and one of the, what I'm arguing, and, and John uh, and Harvey Walton in their book uh, on the Canaanite uh, conquest, on the Israelite conquest of Canaan, uh, they talk about God is more concerned about identity removal, that the shrines, the idols, and so forth are the concern. It's kind of like Nazi Germany, uh, that that once not, the, the monuments and flags and so forth had been destroyed in Nazi Germany, you still had the German people uh, largely intact. The leaders had been, uh, you know, had been hanged and so forth, uh, but the people were still intact. They had been denazified, and this is really what is uh, at issue. And so I, I, I make a case for this, and, and I'll give an example of how even though it uses man, woman, young, and old, uh, we have we have a case from say Numbers 21, where you have these two Canaanite, two Amorite kings. Uh, it says that when they when Israel wanted to go through peacefully in the land, they these Canaanite these Amorite kings rose up and fought against them, and it mentions the king, his sons, and his army. So you think, oh, it's just kind of military battle. It's non-combatants involved. Well, you get to Deuteronomy, which intensifies the language of previous books in the Bible. It intensifies the language, you know, leave, you know, you know show no mercy, uh, you know, let nothing be left alive that breathes, and so forth. But if you read Deuteronomy 2 and 3, it says, you know, you know about these battles, man, woman, young and old. Even though we read in the original kind of on-the-ground battlefield scene, that there were no women or children or elderly people there. It was it was just the this hmm. uh, you know, regular combat. So so the scriptures do use that intensified language, and uh, even in you know even in um, you know, in First Samuel 15, picking up on that same sort of sweeping language uh, with the Amalekites, there's a a battle that was fought uh, against the Amalekites. And the Kenites are there, and they're friends of Israel. And so Saul sends word to the Kenites, saying, "Our issue isn't with you; it's with the Amalekites, who had just raided the Israelite camp." What chapter 14 tells us. And so, in chapter, in verse five of chapter 15, they fight against the Amalekites in this citadel city. Obviously, there aren't going to be women and children around. Uh, you know, they're going to be gone. The Kenites were were there, and they left. Uh, so, so it's it's so the closer you look at the text the more you realize that this is fitting in with an ancient Near Eastern uh, way of speaking about war, where you, it's sort of like our modern trash talk. We totally destroyed that basketball team. We totally annihilated those guys. It was kind of an ancient Near Eastern trash talk that was being used. And, and I argue that you know, even though on the surface it may look like there, uh, there is that kind of genocidal language, the more closely you look, you realize, no, there's, there's something more going on here. And uh, it, it, unlike ancient Near Eastern war texts in, in outside the biblical uh, framework, you know, where they mentioned, we, you know, we turned them to ash, they were non-existent, the scriptures do alongside saying we, you know, we left no survivor, it does also, uh, in, in like a parallel column, 
tell us that there are plenty of survivors uh, that are in the land. And so, so that's the sort of thing that I'm trying to point out in my book. And I give lots of instances and illustrations where, uh, where that happens. And so, so that's the gist of where I'm going on this particular, uh, on this particular point. So I don't see genocide uh, here. I do see, you know, the, even the term utterly destroy. That is a debatable term. Sometimes it's just use of exile. God says he's going to utterly destroy Judah, and they go into exile, but the nation remains intact. So, so though there are the, some, some of those issues that I get into in the Vindictive Bully book. I can go a lot more detail, but perhaps this is enough to, uh, to cover some of that unless you've got follow-up questions. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Mm, yeah, yeah, you do a, a very good job of fleshing everything out. Uh, you know what I'm thinking about as well is those folks were like, God seems so angry in the Old Testament, and... You know, the wrath of God, I, I want to camp out on this for a moment. The wrath of God, would you say, if we look at this properly, it is actual, actually an expression of, of God's love? Yes, I think that we that that's something that I argue. I mean, we could also talk about the justice of God. God is a holy God as well. God is, you know, as First John says, God is light and God is love. And so, uh, so when we look at this, you know, God, you know, that God is concerned, he is, has a passionate concern when people are being oppressed, when people are being dehumanized, when people are degrading themselves and so forth. And so that, that, that when, when his image is, when his image bearers are being, uh, are being damaged and harmed, this, you know, God, uh, God rises up. And if there is oppression, we can see that as an expression of God's, God's concern for his own creation, uh, that God isn't, as one theologian says, God is not angry, or God is not wrathful in spite of his love, but he's wrathful because he is love. And, uh, and so as we look at these, uh, these texts, we also see a lot of people ignore the fact that God is showing a lot of patience, God is renewing mm-hmm. his covenant with his people, yes. that God gives, for example, the Canaanites over 500 years uh, until he finally brings judgment upon them. This is not a precipitous sort of a thing. Uh, and we also need to keep in mind that, you know, as what Paul said in Romans 11.22, and that's a theme that I camp out on in the book, Paul says, Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. Hmm. This is the New Testament, and, and Paul is talking about this, and that, that, that the kindness and severity carries over, carry over into the New Testament. In fact, if you read Jude 5, our best manuscripts say, Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. That's Jesus, yeah. the one who says, Father, forgive them, the one who says, turn the other cheek. Uh, Jesus, you know, in Revelation chapter 3, in chapter 2, in red letters, uh, talks about Jezebel, this false prophetess. He said he's going to cast her on a bed of sickness, and he is going to strike dead her followers. That's Jesus. So, and then we read about the wrath of the Lamb uh, of Jesus in Revelation chapter 6. Yeah. Uh, some people say, oh, that's metaphorical, some of these critics from within. Uh, they'll say, oh, that's metaphor. Well, the metaphor doesn't remove the terror that these, that these people feel uh, when they're about to experience the wrath of the Lamb. They don't tell us why metaphor somehow reduces, you know, it, it reduces the terror. They just assume that it does. And no, it's high, Revelation is highly symbolic, but that doesn't take away from the great severity that we see associated with the wrath of the Lamb. These are excellent points all around. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I think that we've lost maybe 
today as believers, something we don't think about nearly enough is what we call the fear of the Lord, that reverence, mm-hmm. that awe for him. And it's almost like, you know, hey, God's my my best friend. He's my buddy. He is your your friend. He is with you, of course. But we've become overly familiar with him. And, and in essence, that's the way we're framing things out from our viewpoint of how we view God. And we're not remembering that he is just and he is holy and all of these things as well. We're just creating a God uh, in our own mind is what we're doing. And that's why we need to see Scripture as a whole, right? Exactly. And uh, it was one, one person put it, he said, I, I can't believe in a, in, a, in a Messiah who doesn't turn over tables and uh, drive people out of temples. You know, he, uh, there's, there, there is this uh, ferocity uh, in Jesus, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, that Aslan, this Jesus figure, is good, mm-hmm. but he is not safe. Yeah. And I think yeah. we've lost lost sight of the fact that Jesus is not safe. He's not to be domesticated. Uh, Jesus is one who uh, is, you know, he expects to be obeyed. He uh, issues severe warnings. He is one who says it'd be better if someone leads one of these little ones astray, better to have a millstone hung around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's coming from Jesus. Uh, Jesus curses the fig tree as a symbolic of judgment upon Israel. So Jesus is talking about judgment coming to to the nation of Israel in AD 70 under the Roman uh, you know, siege and uh, destruction of Jerusalem and so forth. So, so there is a lot of that that carries over into the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira being struck down, That's Herod right. being struck down uh, for uh, deifying himself or allowing people to praise him as God and so forth. So, so you, there is that carryover. It, it, what's interesting is you you have a, a much shorter time in the New Testament. You know, say thirty, forty years uh, represented. The Old Testament has a lot more. Miley, you've got fifteen hundred years or so uh, where you've got a lot of things going on. So there's there's much more room for the wrath of God to be mentioned, but also the loving kindness as well. And a lot of people lose sight of the fact that God is patient, kind. Mm-hmm. He's grieved when He judges people. When He when He sends the flood, He's He's grieved. Uh, you know, at the rebellion and violence that he sees on the earth and so forth. So those are some things that often get neglected, and I try to draw out those things in this book. Yeah, Yeah. and you know what? The greatest example of where God's wrath and God's love connect, where they intersect, it is the cross, isn't it? Yeah, we see that God is one who takes sin very seriously. God is a just God. Uh, God is a loving God. Uh, you know, so we see that display, you know, for God so loved the world. But we also see in that same chapter in John chapter 3 that while that love is expressed for the toward, uh, toward hum- towards God's creatures, to, to human beings, we also see that God's wrath remains upon them, that it's not as though we pit one against the other. Uh, both, uh, both, both are operative. Wow. That's great. This is good stuff. Yeah. Uh, guys, you have to get a hold of this book because it really goes in depth. And uh, just the way that, that Paul explains things here, you can understand it. It's not so academic that you can't grasp what he's saying. Is God a vindictive bully? And it's brand spanking new. Paul Copan, our guest. Paul, thank you so much for making time to be with us. And thank you for your ministry. Thank you for uh, the books that you have published. They've helped a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a real privilege to be on with you this morning.